Welcome to A Voice from the Hills. I'm James Warner, co-founder of Silicon Hills Wealth Management here in Austin, Texas. And on today's podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into executive compensation. More specifically, that compensation provided through equity awards and grants. Whether you currently occupy a space in the C-suite or just aspire to do so, it's highly likely that equity compensation is going to be a major part of your financial future. And to help us go through all the planning aspects of equity comp, we are fortunate to have one of the industry's best on our podcast today, John Narcessian. John is head of advisor education for PIMCO, and he also serves on the faculty of the Investment and Wealth Institute's Certified Private Wealth Advisor Program. He conducts classes at Yale and the University of Chicago on a myriad of advanced planning issues. John's 2021 paper on behavioral finance is an award-winning must-read. But John's educational guidance is not simply theoretical. John was a client-facing advisor with Merrill Lynch for 18 years and served as the Senior Managing Director of Wealth Management Services at Nuveen from 2000 to 2018. So in addition to a wealth of knowledge, John brings with him a ton of perspective and experience to help advisors apply the advanced techniques in the real world. John is quite simply the resource advisors go to for their most complex wealth management issues. And we are so excited to have him on the program. So let's get started. James Warner is the founding partner of Silicon Hills Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by James, his co-host, and guest are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Silicon Hills Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Silicon Hills Wealth Management may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. John, thank you so much for joining us. And let, let's start by setting the landscape a little bit. Let's assume I'm a, I'm a talented, hardworking executive. I'm, if I haven't already broken into the C-suite, I expect to fairly, recently, fairly soon. Mm-hmm. How should I start thinking about executive compensation, specifically equity compensation? Yeah, I guess a couple of observations I would share with you. The first of which is to recognize that in many instances, um, while we're you know, handsomely rewarded with cash compensation, equity comp both when it's given and then over time as it compounds and grows, it can wind up being a meaningful component of our financial profile. And and so, um, you know, while we're really happy about that occurrence, we work for a great firm and they value our work and they give us equity compensation, the stock hopefully does well. What eventually happens, and I know this sounds like a funny term, it, it can become a problem. We didn't necessarily intend for these grants to represent such a large percentage of our overall net worth but based on good circumstance, you know, our valuable contribution to the company and their generosity in awarding them to us and some good stock performance, all of a sudden we're sitting here a few years in and not through intention, but through circumstance, we wind up with a portfolio structure that's heavily concentrated in equity. Now, you know, that can be good news or bad news. And we'll talk about some of the risks and opportunities and some of the planning considerations that one might think about in that context. So let, let's talk through the how, how that executive is going to acquire the ownership of the equity comp. What are the various structures that corporations use to provide equity compensation? Yeah, I mean, when it comes to equity comp more broadly, and of course, every firm is different. Uh, even the plans inside the firm uh, uh, awards are even different. And that's why one of the things we'd all, you know, strongly suggest to advisors that are working with these individuals or the participants themselves is you get a copy of the plan agreement and you read it. There's a lot in there. There's a lot to unpack. What is the vesting schedule? Are they transferable? What are the tax implications? 
Some of these characteristics are rather standardized. We'll probably talk about them today, uh, you know, broadly speaking, but some of the characteristics are plan specific. And so we would encourage those to, you know, kind of grab a copy of their plan agreement. The two most common forms of equity compensation, above and beyond my salary, above and beyond my cash bonus at the end of the year. Number one is restricted shares or RSUs, very similar in their flavor. And then the second are um, stock option awards, both NSOs and ISOs. They both provide a similar benefit, right? Indirect participation. Company does well, stock does well, I do well. They provide a number of advantages, both to the employer and the employee. From an employer's perspective, it allows them to attract and to retain and to motivate highly productive individuals. The employee benefits because their direct contribution, their performance uh, is rewarded through the great performance, hopefully, of the underlying shares. It's a highly motivating form of compensation that directly links our performance together. And so those are the two primary forms. How do you view uh, ESPP? Do you throw that in the equity compensation bucket? Yeah, I think so. ESPP plans are a great opportunity. Now, we're moving down from that C-suite to the rank and file. And that's, I think, one of the great advantages of ESPPs. So my daughter, for example, just started working for Zoom Video. She graduated from TCU, not too far from you guys in Fort Worth. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, thanks. It only cost me $850,000. i am kidding. <laughs> cost me a lot of money to send her there, but, I, but there's yeah, well, nothing more. She, the, the payback period has started. Exactly. And you know what? I, I know you and I are kidding each other. Is there a better investment in this world than, you know, in your kids and their education and the opportunities that we hopefully, hopefully provide for them? There's, you know, that's, that, that, that's an investment I'm glad to make each and every day. And I'm exaggerating the number, of course. But the point I'm making is she started working for Zoom. And so, um, you know, she receives um, not only her cash compensation, et cetera, and she's a new employee, you know, kind of starting out at the bottom of the, uh, of the ladder. She can participate in the Zoom employee stock purchase plan. ESPPs are available for just about every full-time employee. There's a maximum contribution limit of $25,000 per year. It allows that individual to have um, money set aside from their regular paycheck. So there's no additional impetus required. And and then what these plans often do is they provide that opportunity where um, you get a look back period. Stock is valued on January 1. The stock is revalued at the end of the accumulation period on July 1. And it's the lower of those two values and maybe even an additional 15% discount that is afforded to the individual participant to buy the company stock. And so it's a great way to kind of motivate and incentivize and to develop connectivity, not necessarily with the C-suite, but the rank and file employee as well. Yeah. So it's a nice gateway. Maybe that maybe that's the first introduction that people have to equity compensation. Some of them use those initial ESPPs as almost as uh, executive compensation. Mm-hmm. They participate in the plan with the idea that they're going to cash out the stock, you know, almost as soon as it's rewarded, awarded so they can get the, you know, the 15% benefit and the look back period. Right. And right. then there's others that seem to let it ride. Uh, what are the implications associated with each? What choosing one of those paths? You know, I think it goes back to personal circumstance, right? So that younger, newer employee, uh, and this is the same advice I gave to my daughter. I'm like, look, Margo, um, you know, you and I can make successful investments, right? We can try to 
determine which asset classes to allocate to or which stocks to buy. And those may provide a financial advantage. But let's not lose sight of, let's not ignore the freebies that are provided to you. You participate in a 401k, your company's giving you an immediate match. And as good as I might be at stock picking, it's kind of hard for me to beat a free match from your employer. If we're saving for college funding, 529 plans provide me a tax-free environment to set money aside. What a great opportunity. And once again, I can be a great investor, but it's hard for me to outperform an account that provides tax-free resources. And so the same um, idea applies to this ESPP concept. It's the idea that you're getting a 15% discount and you'd be silly not to take advantage of it to the maximum degree, even if it meant that you were foregoing other expenses, even if it meant that you might be foregoing other investment opportunities, because that immediate 15% return is you know, pretty difficult to ignore. And then, of course, in addition to ESPP, you, you mentioned the RSUs and the non-qualified and qualified options. Mm-hmm. So when, when I'm an executive in my first, uh, you know, I guess my first venture into that world is I get my award letter. And it tells me how many shares I get over what period of time uh, and what the structure is. Yep. Um, how do I start thinking about that in terms of my financial plan? We, we seem to have a lot of executives who almost look at their financial plan and look at their equity comp almost in two separate, under two separate lenses. How do I start at an early age, start really integrating what's happening there with what's happening elsewhere in my financial plan. Yeah, that's a really great observation because for many of us, we don't. Stop and think about it. Just the fact that they're housed in different locations might suggest or imply that we're not integrating the two. We're not considering them collectively or holistically. I got a brokerage account with my financial advisor and I go online every day and I look at the different positions in there. And then occasionally I get a statement from my employer about the stock purchase plan or the stock option awards or the restricted stock grants. And and that's number one is I don't understand the statement. (laughs) And number two is it's held aside from, it's not integrated into the other financial resources that I may be managing with my financial advisor. And so I love your idea of kind of pulling them together. There's additional benefit to be derived in doing so in terms of overall allocation and exposure considerations in terms of taxes, which assets I might realize gains in or which ones I might want to produce losses in, in terms of my gifting opportunities as I consider all of my financial resources in aggregate, as opposed to looking at them independently that may lead to suboptimal choices. And so regardless of whether the award is RSUs or options or whatever it might be, I'm going to have this vesting schedule. And and the way we always tend to look at vesting schedules is that's when I truly gain ownership of the asset. Mm-hmm. And that's also my first decision point. Do I hold the asset? Do I sell it? In in the RSU world, it tends to be you know, a fairly easy decision. Uh, in the non-qualified stock world, I'm I'm usually going to sell as I as I exercise the option because there's not a tremendous amount of benefit uh, to staggering those two decisions necessarily. Mm-hmm. It's that ISO, the incentive stock options, where you know, staggering that exercise to start the qualifying disposition period and the actual sale of it seems to be really where the crux of that first, you know, decision planning benefit per vesting schedule is. Would you, would you agree with that? Would you disagree with any of that? What's your, yeah, 
Yeah, no, I love I love your comments. Let's um let's kind of unpack this a little bit. Let's start first with options, and then we can you know draw the parallel or differences between those and RSUs. Life of an option. Here it is. Day one, I get the grant. Oh, a letter it says congratulations. You're a valued employee, and you've received X number of options on XYZ stock, exercisable at a certain price. Nothing happens then, other than the joy and the satisfaction I derive from receiving that award. The next date in the life is the uh, vesting date. And that vesting may be a single date. We call that cliff vesting, where 100% of the award vests on one day. Or graded vesting, where it grades on an annual basis, a certain percentage of my award. Good news is no taxes due uh, on the vesting date. The third date, and this is the one that you alluded to, is where I get to make a choice after vesting, is when do I exercise? Do I exercise as soon as they vest or have the opportunity to do so? Or do I maybe continue to kind of hold and delay, uh, maybe intending to exercise a little bit later on? After I do exercise, I can sell immediately. Or if there are certain circumstances that might encourage me to do so, I might exercise and then hold the resulting shares. But keep in mind, it is, to your point, the exercise, that's the date at which I have control And that is the date at which taxes are then incurred. And then finally, the last date in an option, and we shouldn't ignore this one because I've seen examples of where people did and it hurt them, is the lapse date. Most options lapse after 10 years. And so essentially what we're describing is kind of a, I don't know, a seven-year window. I can't do anything until it vests. And then I must do something before it lapses. And so those are the kind of the decision windows that exist for many individuals who've received option awards. And so the way we would look at an RSU then is that vesting date and the exercise date are really the same in that, you know, once the vesting happens, we don't, we don't really have a choice on the tax matters. I mean, it's going right. to, that, you know, that amount's going to be implied in our W2. Yeah. So would we look at an RSU the same way as we would look at a non-qualified option that we chose to exercise? Yeah, let's take a look at that. Thanks for um, bringing that up, and I love your comments. So that is the primary difference between equity uh, restricted stock awards versus option awards. With options, we have control over when we decide to exercise based on the price of the security and the timing of it and the tax implications that come with it. With the RSU, we kind of don't have that same control. I receive an award, no taxes due. When that award vests, that's when the taxable event occurs. And so there's nothing that I've done intentionally. There's no control that I'm exhibiting. It just happens when it happens based on the vesting schedule. And then at that point in time, I'm free to examine my options, my choices. I can continue to hold the shares if it's advantageous for me to do so. I can sell the shares immediately. If they're unrestricted, I can collar them or hedge them in some way if it makes sense for me to do so. I can even use them, if it made sense, to give to others as part of my wealth transfer strategy or maybe as part of my charitable strategy. But keep in mind, once those shares vest, I pay ordinary income tax on the full value of that restricted stock award. It establishes a new cost basis, and then if I decide to hold on, I may get a long-term capital gain or loss depending on the future performance. So thanks for the clarification between those two. And then some of our clients, of course, your, your daughter you, you spoke of earlier is, you know, she's going to work for a public company. Yeah. Uh, but many of our clients go to work for private companies. So, mm-hmm. so they would have those same, you know, types of options and, think, and equity compensation. Mm-hmm. 
but that equity compensation doesn't come with the same, you know, readily available liquidity. Right. Uh, what What do you advise people that are operating in that private world versus the public world? Yeah. And how do they treat their equity compensation maybe differently than somebody else who does have those liquidity provisions already built in? You know, if it's publicly traded, there are a number of advantages to me, right? Which is the idea that I know there is a market value for the award that I've received, whether it's a restricted stock grant or an option award. And and I can see what the stock is trading for, and I can calculate the pre-tax and the after-tax value of the award that I've received. And then I can integrate those data points into my overall financial planning effort. And so that's you know, pretty transparent and, you know, pretty easy for me to conduct. If I work for a privately held company, you tell me what's the market value today. I mean, I know what the company told me it was when I received the initial award. And then my accountant used that information in determining the tax consequences of whatever may have happened. But I may not necessarily know what those shares are worth today. And in fact, there may be an opportunity for clients who work for privately held companies where that valuation hasn't necessarily been realized or maximized to take advantage of that unique window before maybe a public offering and and to utilize the discounting that may take place in a a private market for certain financial advantages like lowering the tax consequences or making gifts at a a lower tax bite to me. Those are the primary differences. One of those things you could do, that would would be an area where an 83B election might be appropriate, correct? Yeah, let's talk about 83B. Uh, I'll define it and we'll talk about its application there. So 83B is early exercise and it applies to both options as well as restricted stock, both for private and public companies. Now you might ask the question, John, why would I exercise early? Why why am I exercising before the shares or the options have vested? I got to do it within 30 days of the grant. That's the first requirement. Number two, It's got to be a plan provided provision. It's not universal. It's not available in every company. In fact, there are a lot of companies today that do not provide an 83B election because of the negative consequences that may unfold. I go ahead and exercise under 83B. I pay the taxes then. I hold an asset that hasn't yet vested. And so my hands are tied. And we saw back in the 2000 tech wreck, a lot of individuals who exercised under 83B for the obvious advantage. It's a tax benefit. I exercise and pay taxes today at a lesser amount so that the future gain that may accrue is taxed at long-term capital gain rates, not ordinary rates. I get the advantage, but the downside needs to be considered as well, which is the idea that I exercise early with this intended tax advantage I hope to derive, and then things go south. And then I wind up losing the money that you know I hope to save taxes on. And so 83 yeah, I would assume that if if you're in a private company and the valuations are, are extremely low on the stock, where yeah. you can you know you could acquire a, a large number of shares with a fairly nominal you know capital outlay, that's, that's one it. decision. That, that that's why it makes so much sense to consider it for a private company versus maybe a public company where the valuation's already been received. I want to take advantage of the fact that those shares have not increased to what I consider to be their fair market value so that my risk, my cost up front in using 83B is a lot less, even if things don't work out the way that I hope them to. But if you're in one of these private companies that is approaching unicorn status and just hasn't gone public yet, yeah. I mean, that their valuation through each round of funding is going to be higher and higher and higher. So 
when you do that 83B election, well, I guess you would have already had to, let's say you're a brand new employee with that organization and you've got that 30 day window. All of a sudden you're not staring at such an easy nominal decision anymore. It, it can be a larger capital outlay. Do you find that most of the executives that you work with are just constrained by the amount of money that they're able to throw at it? Or are they constrained by the risk that they're willing to take? How about a little bit of both? So number one is I may not have the liquidity, especially if I'm a newer employer in your hypothetical example. I'm a newer employee, so I don't really have a ton of cash. Let's think about my daughter as an example. If she were working for a pre-public company and um, you know she doesn't have a ton of liquidity that she can use to exercise an option or to use an 83B election on her restricted stock and to pay the associated taxes on that value. So it could be a liquidity constraint. The second constraint might be is, wait a minute, um, I'm not willing to take on that risk. Or, or, and that's a personal decision. The, the risk of exercising now. Look, I go ahead and I buy um, Zoom stock or Amazon stock in the public market. I can turn around and unwind that thing tomorrow morning. Exactly. Uh, I've got no in, you know, encumbrances or hindrances. Uh, but if I'm using an 83B election, uh, I'm making a bet. Um, once again, a bet that this stock will at least hold its value or hopefully appreciate and then I'll derive a tax advantage by the early election, but there's a significant risk if it doesn't. And, and we had a, a client that I was talking to just, just the other day, and they said, you know, you, you start a job as an executive and you go in thinking you're going to be an employee, and the circumstances are you're not only an employee, you're an investor. <laughs> and, and he said to me, he says, I've always been a really good employee and never been a particularly great investor. And it was, and it struck me as I was kind of preparing for our talk today, I went back and looked at some of the things you've done and you did this great piece on investor behavior uh, and bias. I think it was award winning actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, How do you see some of those biases from a behavioral standpoint playing out and are they magnified even when you start talking about equity compensation? That is such a great question because I think the natural tendency when we talk about issues like those that we're discussing today is to look at the mechanics. And I've spent 20 minutes talking about grant dates and vesting schedules and the tax ramifications of different choices. And that's all the financial or technical side. How about the emotional side, which can be just as important as the financial part of the decision-making process. And so as investors, all of us, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, we are behavioral beings. We're emotional beings. And we commit both cognitive as well as emotional biases in the decision-making process. You know them. It's loss aversion. I don't want to lose money. And so I hold on to a crummy investment choice because I don't want to realize the loss. It's recency bias. It's the idea that I put more of my money into assets that have done well recently, assuming or hoping that that trend will continue without any evidence to suggest that it might. How about overconfidence, which really affects this group right here? Overconfidence, I'm a successful employee, going back to your client's reference a little bit earlier. I feel like I might have more control than I actually have. Exactly. Being a great employee doesn't necessarily make me a great investor, but that overconfidence might seduce me into thinking so. And then how about the familiarity bias, right? Or the home country bias. I'm a tech exec. My company's done well. The stock has done well. And therefore, I over-allocate my portfolio in investments that I know or are familiar with, even though it may not be sensible for me to have such a concentration risk. We love to ask a number of questions. 
that I think can ad- address both the financial and the emotional side of this process. So here are some I'll throw out there. Okay, I, you, you know, we're, we're talking about your exposure and what you've received, and we can talk about all the financial planning uh, aspects of it. But but I got a couple of questions for you. Look, you're worth $20 million and 90% of it is in your company stock. If we were building a portfolio from scratch today, not what you're coming to me with circumstantially, but if we were starting with a blank piece of paper and I put $20 million in front of you, if you were intentionally constructing a portfolio, how much of it would you allocate to the company stock? My not guess that is that, that that response <laughs> is probably a lot different than what they're coming to the table with today. How about this one? What would be more upsetting to you? Holding that significant exposure that you have and watching it go down or diversifying from it and then watching the resulting share go up in price. What, what, what's, what's the greater motivator, the fear or the greed component? The, and that's these are where some that of the loss aversion really comes in, right? Because yeah. it's, you know, does, do the losses hurt more than the gains? Yeah. Well, and that's exactly what loss aversion gets to, right? That Kahneman and Tversky work, that losses are twice as emotionally impactful as the resulting gain. I like to win money when I gamble. When I lose, it just hurts more. Exactly. Yeah. And then there's another another part of it you talked about during the article that where you really, I thought, did a better job of this than most any other piece I've read, where you talked about the importance of framing. And so whether it's the whether it's the individual trying to frame their equity compensation decisions or maybe it's their advisor trying to give them a framing uh, mechanism in which to make some of these decisions or get back, you know, get past some of these behavioral biases. It seems to me that framing would be really important. And you used a little bit of it there in that first question that you asked somebody. Uh, as as people get closer to making those decisions, as that vesting date comes in or that exercise date comes in, or maybe even as you astutely pointed out earlier, maybe that maturity date starts bearing down on them. Yeah. How do you, how do you as an advisor or as a teacher in your case, or, I mean, you've, you've really sat on all sides of this. I mean, you've worked with clients for clients and, you know, with advisors and for advisors. So how do you, how do you step into action and frame something so that it gives that person the ability to make the best decision they can make? I love your comments. Uh, I think that is an often overlooked skill um, in financial management. It's framing. Look, if you give me the latitude to do so, if I can construct the context of my argument, I can convince you to do anything. Right? If you give me that complete latitude, I can make a compelling case why you would buy something. I could make a Similarly compelling cases to why you should sell that same asset. It comes back to how I frame it. And so a lot of it has to do with the advisor's understanding of the individual client that they're working with. What motivates them? What are their trigger points? How are they emotionally constructed? Are they risk averse? Are they risk seeking? Um, are they rational? Are they more emotional in the decision-making process? And so we should think about framing in, in terms of how we both deliver advice to investors or how we receive advice as investors. And so I I really like um, some of your references, particularly as it deals with an option that has a limited life. Okay. We've got to do something after it vests or we can't do anything until it vests. And then we've got to do something before it expires. What do you think is going to happen? What would be more upsetting to you? What, uh, What are your objectives for these resources? 
What if things don't work out the way that we thought they would? Um, what is your view of the company stock? Why do you feel it's going to perform in that capacity? What if our inputs are wrong? These are the kinds of, um, I think, issues that need to be considered or can be appropriately framed to help get the client on track and develop a strategy. Look, I'm not going to tell you that there's a great strategy or a bad strategy, but we got to have one. <laughs> we can't just keep our fingers crossed. Yeah. And the other thing that I think is going to be a, a new trend is we. it's not unusual for us to see two executives in the same household today. Hmm. You know, each with their own equity compensation portfolios, each with their own, you know, investor behavioral biases, each with their own career treks. And all of a sudden now you're not only trying to incorporate one set, you know, of those, of those issues into an overall financial plan, you're trying to incorporate two. Hmm. And I expect that there's some opportunities available there, but there's also some significant and unique challenges in that group. You know, if we only have enough money to exercise one batch of options, whose whose <laughs> options do we exercise? It's the marital dilemma, um, and, and so I get the advantage uh, of looking at our assets together. If we're living in a blended household, husband and wife, and a couple of kids, and we're all pulling from the same financial pool of resources and trying to accomplish common goals of educating our kids or retiring together, we've got to look at these assets in concert. We, we can't compartmentalize them, if you will, and just look at one asset pool and another asset pool, because that won't lead to any sort of coordinated outcome. However, what you sometimes run into, and I suspect this is what you're alluding to, is you've got uh, two partners and one of them is really risk averse and the other one is really risk seeking. You know, they got different exactly. risk tolerances. And so how the heck do you manage they just around seem to magically that? find each other, don't they? Oh my gosh, it's incredible. Yeah. And so these arguments break out. Forget about the fighting. I mean, we can get over the fight. The challenge is, is how do we make, you know, productive financial choices when, when we have very different views, different objectives, different risk tolerances? Here's an approach. Number one is to view the assets collectively to understand their total impact uh, on the financial outcomes that we might derive. But number two is, and I've seen some investors and advisors use this strategy appropriately. If we're not on the same page, if... if if the husband says, look, I really want to day trade stocks. I think I'm really good at it. And I want to do that with my money. And the other spouse says, gosh, I, I really believe in buy and hold long-term investing. Maybe we peel off a percentage of the portfolio with some common ground in the middle that secures their financial future, but allows each of them to embrace some of the approaches that they're personally inclined to pursue. Maybe that's the way we kind of split the baby in half and arrive at some sort of harmonious financial choice. It's the investor equivalent of keeping those separate credit cards so you can do the... Uh, you know, mental yeah. accounting, I think that's another behavioral term. It's the idea that I separate things out that allows me to you know, deal with them um, in, in a different context. And of course, you've got two executives that are, that are used to having control and, and a lot of responsibility. And now all of a sudden, they, they have a committee of two and if you're lucky enough, maybe it's a committee of three or four, or however many people in your firm are helping them. Yeah. Uh, but but that does uh, that does come with its own challenges. So that's some good advice. Let, let's talk a little bit about uh, about you personally. I understand that you and your wife met on a uh, on a relief mission in Armenia. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I grew up in New Jersey, um, Livingston, New Jersey, just outside of New York, and um, attended Lehigh University. And I started my career as a private banker for Merrill. 
um, in New York and New Jersey. And um, back in 1988, there was an earthquake overseas. My, you know, I was pretty involved with my church and appreciated my, my nationality and my heritage. And my wife was uh, working for her family business. I didn't know her at the time here in Chicago. And after this earthquake took place, we both, uh, along with 25 other uh, young professionals, went over and did relief work. I mean, what a great wow, opportunity really cool. to kind of pull myself out of the financial world for a couple of minutes. It was a I don't know, two-month trip. And to really connect with my roots and more importantly, give me a perspective that allowed me to appreciate uh, those who are less fortunate and some of the struggles they were dealing with. And so it was a kind of a charitable initiative. Um, but the long story short is I wound up meeting this woman who was on that same trip. And after a little period of time, we got married and um, we lived in New Jersey for a bit. Uh, then when I became a director with Nuveen out of Chicago, I brought her back home which made my mother-in-law very happy. That must have made you a hero in the household. Huh? For about five minutes, by the way. It didn't take me long to screw that up. Um, heroism never lasts very long. No, no, not for me. <laughs> um, and so anyhow, so I brought her back home and she lives, you know, a block from her twin sister and three blocks from her my mother-in-law and, uh, you know, right around the corner from their family business, which is why I love to travel so much in my job, right? Um <laughs> Um, and so we split yeah, our time. So you got now. close to family. You got close to a couple of airports. So that's yeah, good. exactly. Uh, but we do split our time now. I mean, I'm calling you or dialing in from Wilmette, Illinois, just north of Chicago. But for tax purposes and other personal reasons, we we have a home down in Naples, Florida, and I'll hopefully be there sometime next week, assuming I can get a break in my schedule. Well, so just in in terms of you know the relief work and the charitable work that you do as a family, I mean, obviously a lot of our executives are, are doing the same thing. Yeah. And they want to incorporate probably mm-hmm. some of their their equity compensation, particularly that low cost basis ESPPs or the maybe they've uh, you know, they've done some exercising of options. Now they've got they actually own the stock with a low basis. Yep. How do they start thinking about that in terms of incorporating that or maybe even prioritizing that in their own yeah. uh, charitable endeavors? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, this could sound funny when I say it, but stop writing checks. Exactly. Stop writing checks. I appreciate your generosity. It's well intended and I get it and I applaud you for it. But the individual who keeps writing a check to charity, if the Armenian church calls up and says, we're putting a new window in. Can you write us? Glad to support it. But writing a check, that is the least effective way to do it. We've got to encourage our clients to not necessarily change the amount they're giving to charity, but to be a little bit more intentional in their philanthropy as opposed to spontaneous or reactive right? How much do I want to give to charity every year? What are the causes I want to support? And then maybe the third question, which is the one you're alluding to, is what's the best way for me to do it? And as you know, as I know, the best way to give to charity, not to give more money to charity, but to make the charitable giving we're doing more beneficial to us is to bunch our deductions. The standard deduction today is 25 grand. Itemized deductions, I get salt, but that's capped at 10. I got medical, but that's going to exceed 7.5% of AGI. I get the charitable deduction, but it's more advantageous for me to bunch my charitable gifts in a single calendar year. Maybe I open a donor advice fund. It's philanthropy on training wheels. And if I'm going to write a check for 10,000 bucks for the next 25 years to the Armenian church, that's 250 grand. Maybe I'm better off making that lump sum contribution to my donor advice fund today. And I do it with appreciated low basis stock to avoid the capital gain and the 3.8% NII, 
And then from there, I can make distributions to any entities I want. And then so you can a, write those $10,000 checks to yourself. Exactly. I'm giving the <laughs> same amount to charity, but the charitable giving that I'm doing is more personally beneficial to me, either saving me tax dollars in the process or affording me the opportunity to give even more to the charities that I want to support. And you had talked about, you know, reading the plan documents and things like that beforehand. I mean, obviously, once we get the exercises done and we acquire full ownership of the stock, yeah. we can do with it whatever we want. Are there are there situations where prior to that, we can consider using those as gifting um, gifting areas and even even using it in a in a different manner, maybe not using it as an actual asset, but using it as collateral for a mortgage or. You know, are there any of those uh, particular strategies you find people using? Let's talk about two of them. Let's talk about gifting and let's talk about uh, lending. So gifting, not to charity now, but maybe gifting to family members. And so I know right. that the annual gift exclusion is 15000 bucks per person per, you know, per year. That's a freebie. I can do it as much as I want to as many people as I want every year if I choose to. And that's a great way for me to shift assets to beneficiaries that I want to support. It doesn't eat into my unified credit amount. It doesn't cost me a gift tax in doing so. And so I can give cash. And in fact, we're doing this later on. It's Today's date is December 9th, I think. And um, our family will be having a family meeting down in Naples, Florida for my mom and dad and my brother and my sister and all the grandkids and stuff. And we'll be doing annual gifting to these you know, younger family members. Well, you could write a check. You know, that's one way to do it. And that can provide certain advantage. But maybe an even better way is to give low basis property to these individuals. I mentioned my daughter. I also think I mentioned my son who just graduated from Northwestern. And um, my wife and I wanted to buy him a car as a graduation present back in June. And so I could have liquidated assets and paid the taxes and then wound up buying a net car for as a gift. But what we did instead, because his you know bracket is still relatively low, he just started working. We transferred low basis stock to him. He was able to sell it at a 0% capital gain rate. It's a lot higher than my capital gain rate. And then we were able to affect that gift uh, for him. I can also gift the property separate from you know making a gift or buying a car. I can gift it as part of my estate planning strategy. Because keep in mind, the estate tax rate today, it's 40% for assets above $11.7 million. And so, you know, God bless those individuals who have that kind of problem but it's very much our suspicion that that number is going to come down in future years. In fact, it automatically will. In 2025, that's right. It's when Tax Cut and Jobs Act expired, the number comes down to like $5 million. And so the question I would ask rhetorically is, what are you doing about that? Are you just kind of keeping your fingers crossed? Or are you embracing some sort of gifting strategy or other techniques to lower the tax bill and to retain more wealth among your family members? So I think that makes a ton of sense. Let's also address the second item you brought up, lending. And a lot of clients lose uh, sight or don't think about this one. And so borrowing money effectively is almost as important as investing money effectively, right? It, the, the, the dollars are fungible, whether they're dollars I receive from interest or dollars I pay as interest. I, I want to maximize you know, all those decisions. And so you know, if I'm building a new house in Naples, Florida, and I got to come up with cash, well, I can sell my assets, but I got a big capital gain tax to pay. What we've read about recently in the news are executives who have done really, really well and have avoided paying taxes by simply pledging 
their appreciated assets as collateral and then borrowing against them. The rates are really compelling today. Three-month LIBOR plus a spread of one and a half or two percent. You know, we're borrowing money at really cheap rates, but it's not just the rate. It's the opportunity to create liquidity for personal benefit without the negative consequences of selling securities and paying capital gain taxes. That's the real advantage of the strategy. And I just don't think a lot of executives uh, are going into those kind of transactions with that mindset, like that's even an option. Uh, And so I think as advisors, one thing we can do is just make sure that, you know, those things are always on the table and those lending and charitable discussion, charitable, you know, giving or giving to the family or what have you, you know, is always on the table because sometimes you might not be able to do it, but at least knowing it is a, a credible option is really important for people. Look at how complicated this stuff is. Look at what we've talked about so far. We've talked about taxes and we've talked about exercise mechanics and we've talked about gifting and we've talked about charitable stuff and lending. Holy cow. I mean, and think about the, the, the busy executive who was investing their time and effort in their business and maybe not staying on top of these personal financial matters as closely as they'd like to. That's the real value of a competent advisor in that equation. Yeah, let's muddy the water a little bit more. Let's spend a moment on legacy and estate planning because it doesn't seem to me that equity compensation is really being properly addressed in most estate plans. Uh, What are the top planners that you're working with and executives doing to incorporate that executive comp in their estate? So it goes back to one of the strategies that we discussed a moment ago, which is gifting, uh, which can be a really effective way to solve for the equity awards and to simultaneously address or achieve a particular estate uh, benefit. And so I remember reading an article a couple of years ago about the chairman of Neighbors Industries. I think Neighbors is an oil and gas company. It might even be down in your neck of the woods. It's not too far from us. Okay. Yeah. I don't know exactly where they're located, but I do recall the article. And what he had done was he had a bunch of uh, non-qualified stock options that he had been granted over the years. And of course, as we know, A non-qualified option doesn't have a lot of value to it. It's not restricted stock now. An option. Remember, with options, we only benefit from or participate in the increase in the stock price. So until the stock goes up, the option isn't worth a hell of a lot. And so what this individual did is he took $5 million of option awards that he had received over time, and he transferred them. He gifted them for the benefit of his kids. I don't know if he did it directly or if he created some sort of trust or structured vehicle to kind of control it. When the options eventually vested and were exercised, the five million had turned into, because of the leverage of an option, 35 million. And so this is an extreme example, but a really good one of the the power behind, the leverage behind gifting not just cash, but gifting appreciable property, you know, assets with high appreciation potential, whether it's a closely held family business interest or in this case, an option, which provides that tremendous upside leverage, tremendous tax advantage, estate tax advantage that is derived by looking at the estate, figuring out the liability, and then which assets might be most effective in utilizing. Yeah, that's a great one. I hope I hope people are writing that down. It's yeah, really it's awesome. the example, not the number. Yeah, don't be yeah. intimidated by the numbers. But the number is pretty, yeah, it's hard to get past that number. Let's talk tactics because, you know, we've given our current tax rates and surtaxes, et cetera. What are you seeing some of the common tactics when people are exercising options, like particularly ISOs? Are people doing it more earlier in the year to get the clock running or are they waiting till later in the year to make sure they don't have AMT problems? What, what, what do you see happening there? 
So let's talk about the ISO issue, right? So we know that there are two flavors of options, NSOs and ISOs. NSOs are more traditional. I pay taxes as compensation income when I make that decision to exercise. And that's kind of how it works. The ISO works a little bit differently. There's a little bit more uh, flexibility, if you will, and a potential advantage that comes from it. With the ISO, and once again, they're not used as often, so there's probably a smaller audience of folks who have them. If you're lucky enough to get an ISO, instead of recognizing uh, income and paying taxes when you exercise, if you hold it for two years from the date of grant, one year from the date of exercise, it's called a qualifying disposition, and you do not pay ordinary income taxes during the exercise, you pay capital gain taxes when you sell it under that holding period requirement. And that's huge. I mean, 20% capital gain rates, 37% ordinary rates. I'll, I'll take advantage of that spread every chance you give me to. And so um, that's the good news. There are two risks, however. To, it sounds like a great strategy. Why wouldn't you do it? Well, there are two considerations. The first of which is you could exercise and then you're holding now for this period of time. So you're now taking market risk. And just like the 83B election that we talked about a little bit earlier, which was intended to produce a tax benefit, what seemed like a good idea, all of a sudden the stock's going down. And so we lose capital uh, by meeting that holding period requirement, hoping to you know convert the ordinary to long-term. So that's risk number one. The second risk is the AMT bite. Although it's not taxable in the year of exercise, it is taxable income or a preference item for my AMT calculation. Now, I know that AMT is a lesser issue today. The exemption amount's a lot higher. It's not subject to phase out until my income exceeds a million bucks. So there are fewer and fewer people trapped in the AMT. But for the individuals that we're alluding to here, if you happen to hold an ISO and if it's sizable and you exercise it for the tax benefits that we discussed, the long-term capital gain, you could be triggering an AMT bill. And that's why I like your suggestion of maybe doing it early in the year, maybe in January, because now what I have is flexibility. I can look at my activity during the year and I can decide if I'm an AMT, I may decide to unwind this thing to avoid the AMT bite. Or if the stock is going down, I can decide to sell it and avoid or maybe um, forego the potential tax advantages to preserve the capital that I want to hold on to. And then if things work out to my advantage, if I'm not in AMT and if the stock's doing okay, I just hold it for a year. And then I get the long-term capital gain that you were referenced earlier. And is that one of those scenarios where as advisors, we can kind of sit down with that person in that January timeframe and talk through the different, you know, talk through those different environments before they find themselves in that environment? I think beginning of the year is a great opportunity for the example we just referenced. I'm also going to suggest that people have that conversation before the end of the year. So right now, my maximum rate is 37%. Maybe my rate was even down this year because my business was off or I didn't get the bigger bonus that I thought I was going to get. And so maybe it makes sense for me with the help of my tax professional and my financial advisor, maybe it makes sense for me to actually exercise some of my options now. Not all of them, but I exercise some of them now to have the income realized at a lower marginal rate today versus a higher marginal rate in the future. Don't know if that's the case, but I sure as heck do know that that's something I should look at and determine whether or not it's advantageous to do that. And then since we are in the last few days of 2021, there's always those, you know, year end best practices for, uh, for people to follow just in, in your work, uh, 
Do you, do you have a few of those? So what should people be thinking through? I just gave a lecture on this and it was an hour and a half. So you got a few minutes to spend. <laughs> let's hit the bullet points. Yeah. Let's talk about a couple of the more common ones. Year end strategies, right? There are a number of articles produced on it. I got a checklist with 26 or seven year end best practice considerations. Not everyone's going to fit, but let's go over some of the more obvious ones that could provide benefit. Number one is review your unrealized capital losses. If you're producing gains throughout the year, you know that we can use losses dollar for dollar to offset those gains. We can use three grand against ordinary income. Anything above and beyond gets carried forward. So review your capital gain and capital loss position. Be aware of the wash loss sale rule, that 61 day window where I can't sell it for tax loss benefit and then repurchase the security within that window of time. But there are ways to get around that. Second thing that we should take a look at between now and the end of the year is Roth conversions. I know, I know. <laughs> a lot of people looked at it. We ran the numbers for them and they said, thanks, but no thanks. I don't want to write the IRS a check this year. And even though there may be a longer term benefit associated with it, I don't like the idea of writing them a check today. And so a lot of people took a pass on it. But once again, if the circumstances suggest that it's appropriate, if you believe your rate is lower today and it's going to go up in the future, or maybe incrementally, if you want to avoid an RMD that typically comes from a traditional retirement account, maybe I go ahead and I consider a partial Roth conversion. I do that planning or have that conversation with my advisor. Uh, charitable giving, the end of the year, that, that makes a lot of sense. Cash, maybe or using the appreciated assets that we referenced a little bit earlier, whether directly to charity or maybe a larger lump sum amount through a donor advised fund. These are some of the more common year end planning strategies. I'll give you one last one. It's not tax benefit. It's rebalancing. Now, now you don't have to rebalance at the end of the year, but if I'm having a conversation with my advisor of reviewing performance and our allocations, Let's make sure that we stay disciplined. Let's make sure that our portfolio allocations today reflect the policy that we started with at the beginning of the year. And if, I know it's counterintuitive, if certain assets have done really well and others have done less well, let's bring things back into focus to make sure that we hold the portfolio structure that we had intended. Rebalancing forces us to do what is emotionally uncomfortable, but financially productive. And so that might be an interesting year of uh, end of the year exercise. And then even incorporating that rebalance into some of those other decisions like charitable or, I mean, if you're, if you're actually going to reduce that position in that stock that's done really well, why not tell you, you know, why not use that position to make your charitable contribution? Those, Love those it. It's a perfect end of the year discussion because I know at the end of the year what my income is likely to be or what my deduction activities are going to be or what the securities are now worth or what my portfolio allocations are. And so I can incorporate all of those data points into a sensible activity. Well, John, thank you so much for your time. I just got a couple more questions for you. I'm going to make okay. you, I'm going to make you the equity comp czar for life. Oh my gosh. And I'm going to grant every new equity award holder an audience with you. Okay. 20 minutes. All right. So they get, as soon as they get their grant award, they are whisked magically into your office. Love it. You've got 20 minutes with them. What do you tell them? Boy, uh, I don't know if I can cover it all in 20 minutes with them. Uh, what I tell them first uh, is to understand what you own. That's probably step one in the process. Because stop and think about the statements they get or stop and think about the plan agreements. Nine times out of 10, the average participant doesn't really know what they own or how it works or what it's worth. And so I often start the process with education. Obviously, your podcast is fantastic in providing this kind of education, but also maybe a simplified spreadsheet 
of what they own to show them the grant dates, the initial award amount, the amount that's been vested or unvested, what the pre-tax value is and what the after-tax value is. When I'm able to kind of capture and synthesize that information and present it to them so they actually see what they've got in a clearer context, similar to the brokerage accounts that might have with you, that's 90% of the battle right there. Now I can have a conversation around, all right, what's it worth? What are the implications? How do I think about either holding it or selling it? What's the pre-tax number? What's the after? I can make better choices when I understand what I actually own. So that's probably the most important step in the methodology. Yeah, that's a great one because we have, you know, the, the when we're doing mind mapping and asset mapping and things like that, it seems to be, like you said, it's about 90% of the journey because it, it separates what would have been uh, a really difficult jumbled decision into an orderly, you know, list of things that have to be addressed. Yep. Uh, all right. So that was great. I mean, that, if you only got to give them one advice, that'd be, that'd be great start. So now you're still czar for life. Okay. Uh, but now, now you work only with seasoned executives who are facing a new opportunity with another corporation hmm. while they have a great opportunity with the corporation they're currently serving. Hmm. Uh, they've got some awards that are on the table. They've got some options that haven't vested yet there there's some golden handcuffs here going on and they don't know what to do uh, <laughs> is it is it as simple as saying you know, your your equity compensation probably is never going to make this decision so let's not get too worked up over it or is it more complicated than saying you know you really need to know what you're leaving behind before you accept that new position it is tough and i know that sounds like a terrible statement oh what a problem per se oh i got all this stuff that's really valuable how's that a problem well it is uh, my brother's a perfect example of it he runs the original hewlett packard he's the ceo of keysight technologies out in santa rosa california and he and i talk about retiring all the time and and the challenge is, is every year he delays it uh, it's because the stock's done really well and he's done well personally, but he's got new awards that he constantly receives, which makes the decision to leave really tough. He's going to be leaving a lot of money on the table. And so, I don't know, maybe that's where the help and guidance of a financial advisor can come into play. How much do you actually need? How much are you enjoying the job? What are you retiring to, right? Is it another job or a better quality of life? Uh, let's do some planning so that we actually understand the implications of our decision to either stay or leave. And, and then maybe we can make a better informed decision. But you're 100% right. That is one of the maybe obvious or less obvious um, characteristics of an equity award. It's not just to pay you more money. It's to keep you around, make sure that you work really hard so that the company derives a benefit from those efforts. Yeah, they wouldn't call them golden handcuffs if they didn't work. Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> but I think too that maybe incorporating that estate planning. You made a great uh, observation earlier when you're whether it's whether it's five million or twelve million or whatever it is. There's always a number, uh, and over and above that number, you're going to be paying forty percent. And so, at the end of the day, who are you working for once you get over that over that number at some, on some level you're working for yourself and on some level you're working for the government. Absolutely. Uh, so what is my number? Uh, that's an interesting retirement question, right? What do I personally need to live? Listen, chances are most of the people listening to this, they're not going to run out of money in their lives. What they're going to run out of is time. And so the question that I would ask you is how do you want to spend it? 
How do you want to allocate those resources to lead a fulfilling life? I get it. More dough's better, but it's not always the best answer or the right answer for each of us individually. I'm 63 years old. I've determined that every extra year I work, I'm just funding my wife's retirement with her next husband after I'm gone. And so, you know, <laughs> I got to decide how much of that I want to keep doing. I don't know how we rank that in terms of, uh, you know, making extra payments to the IRS, but neither one yeah. of them sound very, uh, Man, they're both at the bottom of my, yeah, they're, they're at the bottom of the pile. Uh, all right, John, any final words for the audience? I know we've, uh, we've run a little bit long here, but I just, every answer you give makes me want to ask another question. So at <laughs> some point I've got to stop this. Uh, now this is good. Congratulations. You run a great podcast. I'm, uh, so pleased to be part of it. I hope that we've provided some, you know, some generic education around these equity awards and maybe some thought provoking ideas that should be discussed. Here's what I would strongly recommend is just don't ignore it, which is what a lot of people do. They kind of procrastinate and believe it or not, not making a decision is in directly making a decision, which is to do nothing. And, um, you know, these often represent such a significant component of our financial structure. It deserves the same time and attention that the investment, the outside investing activity that we embrace. And think about how much time we spend, you know, managing our stock portfolios. Think about how much time we spend uh, refining our, um, you know, our wedge game in, in golf. Are we allocating the same amount of time and energy and effort for such a significant resource in our financial life? D don't ignore it. Get some qualified help. Uh, come up with a strategy. Uh, and that'll certainly, I know that if I improve my process, that can certainly help to uh, improve my performance. Let's focus on the process. Let's make sure that it's valid. Well, in terms of investment of time, this hour has been a really good one for me. And I hope, and I, I trust that anybody who has the ability and opportunity to listen is going to come away with some, you know, some great tips and maybe it's some different ways to think about their uh, equity compensation. John, thank you so much for joining us. I love your work. Thanks. Uh, you should be really proud of your career and what you've accomplished. And whether you're in Chicago or Naples, Florida or whatever, I wish you and your family the best. And Thanks. thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And that's a wrap for episode number 10 with John Narcessian on equity compensation. If you enjoyed the uh, podcast, please give us a, a five-star rating on the platform of your choice. You can also find all of our previous episodes, uh, on pretty much any podcast platform that's available now. You can also find them on our website. Uh, if you have particular interest in the topic of executive compensation, we are going to be issuing some tactical, shorter, uh, more actionable items through our Wealth Voice uh, platform. And thank you so much for listening and engaging with us because we can only do our best work when you are here to listen. Thank you.